You know, we've been in this sermon series the last several weeks, as Josh pointed out, titled Hashtag The Bible. And our goal throughout this sermon series has been to take a look at the Bible as, as one continuous story. Start to finish, cover to cover, it is one singular story. And that story can be summed up in six simple words. Those words are, God desires to be with us. If you remember back to week one, for those of you who are here, that was sort of my Twitter version of the Bible that I presented you with. God desires to be with us. And if you'll also remember from week one, I'm going to give you a little bit of recap here to bring everybody up. From week one, we found that the story began with, with God and Adam. And God was fully with Adam, and Adam was fully with God. And, and Adam, he was living this perfect, untarnished relationship with the world he had a perfect relationship with, with his work and, and with his, his other people, which was Eve, and, and even a perfect relationship with God. And that's the way God dreamed this whole thing would take place. But at some point, Adam decided to step outside of that dream. And he turned his dream into a nightmare. And he was separated from God. And God at that point could have said, hey, you know, let's scrap this whole human experiment. Let's, let's move on and let's do something different. But he didn't do that. No, we found out in week two that God then reached down into this world and he picked one person. He picked one guy through whom he was going to build a nation. And this nation was going to have that sole purpose of, of bringing his people back to him. That was week two. How many of you remember who that was in week two? Who was the one man? Abraham, correct. And through Abraham, God did build a nation, a great nation. And, and however, we found out in week three that this nation then kind of fell on some hard times, once again because of their choices, and they found themselves in slavery in Egypt. And God once again reaches down and He picks out one man who's going to deliver His people from slavery and take them into the promised land so that they can once again begin rebuilding that dream that God had for them, that dream that God had to be with his people. And that guy's name? Moses. Excellent. After Moses, we find that there's this 350-year period where, where God's people get into this vicious cycle. And it's a vicious cycle where they, they turn away from God and they start to try to do things their own way. And God sends down a, a special person called a judge. And that judge is there to bring the people back to God once again. And it's a vicious cycle. It happens over and over and over. God's people turn away. God sends a judge. He brings the people back. So we start off the Bible with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Bible. Then we come to Joshua. Joshua was the sort of the greatest of the judges. And then where do you think that we find the rest of the judges? In a particular book of the Bible titled, guess what? Judges. Correct. But at some point, God's people get sick of this whole judges system that he's created and they start thinking you know they're looking around at other nations of the time and they're saying all these other nations they have a king why can't we have a king they look like they got something that's working for them why, why can't we have a king and so they come to god and it's in first samuel chapter 8 verse 5 the people say to god they say appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have 
And now I want you to put yourself in, in God's sandals, if you will, for just a minute. God, he wanted to be their king. In fact, he had already declared himself their king back in the book of Deuteronomy. And, and now the people are coming to the saying, God, we want a king. Give us a king. This had to have broken God's heart. And so God says a few verses later in verse 7, he says, They have rejected me as their king. And he goes on to say, You will regret rejecting me as your king. But God realizes something about us as humans. He realizes that sometimes we can be a little stubborn, a little hard-headed, a little bull-headed. And sometimes we have to learn our lesson the hard way, right? So God says, fine, you want a king? I'll give you a king. And so he gives them a king. Their first king is a fellow by the name of Saul. And now Saul, if you were to ask me to sort of grade his kingship while he was here and was king, and I would probably give him about a D Maybe a D plus. I mean, he did a few things right, but ultimately he led the people away from God. And so God ends up replacing him, and he replaces him with a guy by the name of David. And now David had the makings of an A plus king. I mean, despite the fact that he was the youngest in his family and the smallest in his family, and he, he came from obscurity as a, as a shepherd boy, very quickly when David enters the scene, he he brings with him some significant upsides. If I were to ask you, what's the most famous story of David? I'm guessing most of us would come up with the same story. He's a little boy. He has a sling and a, and a rock. And he goes out and he gets in a fight with a really big guy. What's that guy's name? David and Goliath. David and Goliath. That's probably the most famous story of David in the Bible. He goes out and he fights this big warrior giant and he defeats him and he rescues God's people. You see, David is he's sort of a, a beast on the battlefield. I mean, this guy is kind of unstoppable. And the people of Israel, they're thinking, all right, we finally got what we want in a king. But David, he's, he's more than just a more than just a great warrior, he's also got kind of a softer side to him. He's a great singer-songwriter. The Psalms, the book of Psalms, which literally means spiritual songs. It's the biggest book in the Bible. David wrote the vast majority of those songs in there. He is a great and talented musician. For those of you who've been following along in our text clues throughout this sermon series, you've already kind of picked up on this, but... But uh, the, the, the great singer-songwriter Bono from U2, he once referred to David as the Elvis of the Bible. I mean, he's a talented musician, David is. So he, he's a talented musician, he's spiritually passionate, he's a great warrior, a great military leader. And so the Israelites think, all right, we finally found our king. And David, he goes on this, this incredible run when he first becomes king. He, he brings prosperity to his people. He defeats foreign powers. I mean, things are really going well for David and for the people of God. It's looking like things are finally falling into place. And David's incredible run, it, in, it in, included something that had to do with uh, a thing called the Ark of the Covenant. 
Now, the Ark of the Covenant, <clears throat> it's also referred to as, as the Ark of God or the Ark of the Lord. And the Ark of the Covenant, yes, it is the, the exact thing that's found in Indian, the Indiana Jones movie, the Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's what Indiana Jones was out after. And, and the Ark of the Covenant, it was this, this very beautiful, intricately crafted box. And inside this box was the original stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. And despite the fact that these stone tablets of the Ten Commandments, despite the fact that they have engraved on them, thou shalt not steal, we find out that the stone tablets and the Ark of the Covenant have been stolen. And so when David becomes king, he makes it his personal mission to bring home the Ark of the Covenant. It's sort of the national treasure for the Israelites. And so he sets out to bring home the Ark of the Covenant, and he's successful. He does just that. He brings the Ark of the Covenant home. And as David is marching into Jerusalem, the capital city, with the Ark of the Covenant, this is what we find. There's this huge celebration that breaks out. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 6, starting in verse 1. It says, David mobilized 30,000 special troops to bring home the Ark of God. David and all the people of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all their might. Now, I want you to think back to last year when, when the Cubs won the World Series. Now, I know none of us ever thought that would happen, but it did. And when it did happen, think about the celebration that broke out after they won the World Series. It was crazy. I mean, I was watching some of this on television. The celebration was absolutely crazy. But I want you to think that the celebration of the Cubs winning the World Series, that paled in comparison to the celebration that's taking place right here in the book Samuel as David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel. And I want you to check out how David celebrates as he's marching into the city. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 6, starting in verse 14, it says, David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the Ark of the Lord. So here's David. He's dancing for all he's worth, worshiping God, and maybe you're thinking, well, now, what's this linen ephod business? What is a linen ephod? Well, I'll tell you, it's kind of like an undershirt. Maybe just a little bit longer, kind of hip length. Back in those days, they hadn't invented tidy whities or boxer briefs yet. And so this was what they wore as, as underwear. And so what we find is that David is, really, he's dancing in the streets in his underwear. I mean, he's celebrating God. He's laying it all on the line. He's, he is, he's dancing for all he's worth. And he's doing it all in his underwear. And you may think, well now, why did, why did the, the Bible even include this little detail about David dancing in his underwear? I mean, couldn't they just have left that out? Well, I'll tell you why they included it. It's because, just sort of like today, back then, if you were to be dancing in your underwear, that was kind of considered an undignified sort of thing. You weren't supposed to let people see you in that little amount of clothing, much less as a king in the streets, dancing in his underwear. But this is what David does. He's dancing for all he's worth like nobody can see him in celebration of God. He's so consumed with worshiping God that either he isn't aware or he just doesn't care 
what people think of him. Have you ever had a time in your life like that? A time where you were so consumed with worshiping God, so consumed with with what God had for you that you just didn't care what other people thought of you? You just didn't care what other people were thinking or saying as they were looking at you. You I think David's story is a prime example of what can happen when God is seated on the throne of our hearts. When God is Lord, when He's ruler, when He's king, our lives are filled with this energy, this enthusiasm, this enthusiasm, this passion that just drives us to do things that might seem kind of crazy to others. And that's why we're talking about David this morning. The point of David is not that that David was on the throne of God's nation. No, the point of David is that God was on the throne of David's heart. Now, I guess I probably ought to give a little bit of a disclaimer here. We are in no way advocating naked dancing in worship. If I show up next week and see some of you in, my t- in your tidy whities we're going to have to have a little sit-down and discussion, okay? So no tidy whities for next week. But I can't help but think, as I, as I picture David dancing in the street in his underwear, I can't help but be reminded of another story we already talked about in the Bible. It kind of takes me back to week one in this series when we talked about Adam and Eve and You remember how we described them, how the Bible described them as being with God and they were naked and unashamed. And we said that meant that they had nothing to hide from each other, nothing to hide from God. And that's exactly where David is. He's living this this unhindered, uninhibited relationship with God that points back to the relationship that God had in mind. The relationship that God always dreamed he would have with his people. The relationship that God dreams he could have with you. And with God seated on the throne of David's heart, we don't just see that he has this great relationship with God. It also impacts his relationship with other people. You know, I already pointed out that that David took over the the throne of of God's people. He took that over from a guy named Saul. And it was kind of customary in those days that when a new king came to power, he would sort of hunt down all the members of the previous regime. I mean, the idea was that if you kill everybody in the previous king's family, there's not going to be any sort of uprising. And so when David becomes king, what we find is that David's looking for Saul's family members, any living relatives that might still exist. But it's interesting that you find out David isn't looking for any relatives of Saul so he can kill them. No, on the contrary. He happens to find one living relative of Saul. It's a grandson, a guy by the name of Mephibosheth. That's a mouthful of a name, isn't it? Go ahead and say that with me. Let's say Mephibosheth. Bless you. I'm just kidding. I couldn't resist that one. But, but seriously, do we have any expecting mothers out here this morning? Anybody expecting it? No? Well, we got one back here. All right. So I want you to think about this. With your next child, your next child, if it's a little boy, this is my son, Mephibosheth. Yeah? Yeah? 
But no, seriously, he finds this son, Mephibosheth, this grandson, Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth, he's been in hiding for a long time now because he, he, he knows what's coming. He knows what to expect. And so when David finds him, Mephibosheth has got to be thinking. He's got to be thinking, it's all over. It's done for. The morbidly obese lady is singing and I'm done for. But I want you to catch what David says to this Mephibosheth. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 7. He says, don't be afraid. He says, for I will surely show you kindness. And he goes on to say, and you will always eat at my table. Now, David could have had Mephibosheth executed. In fact, according to customs, he probably should have had Mephibosheth executed. But he doesn't. He shows Mephibosheth mercy. And when he says, you will be eating at my table, he's saying, you are welcome in my home anytime. He's saying, you're like, you're like family to me. And so again, let me ask you, if David can treat a theoretical enemy like this, who do you think is seated on the throne of David's heart? Bottom line, when God chose David for the throne, He didn't choose David so that Israel could become some great world power. God chose David because he wanted somebody who could bring his people back to him. Remember, that's God's sole purpose in this story we call the Bible, to be with his people. And so he chose David to help him restore his dream. And I wish I could tell you that's all the story. I wish I could tell you that's all there is to the story of David, but it's not. David's story is kind of like the opening line to that famous novel, It Was the Best of Times, It Was the Worst of Times. His life is the story of two extremes. I already pointed out that probably the most famous story of David is the story of David and Goliath, but probably the, most, the second most famous story of David is the story of David when he has an affair an extramarital affair with a woman by the name of Bathsheba. Very good. It's interesting, you know, as David, as, as king of God's people, he could have had anything he wanted. I mean, if he wanted filet mignon for supper or caviar for breakfast, he could have it. If he wanted a, a tailor-made suit, he could have it. If he wanted your house, he could have it. He is the king. But there is one thing that David couldn't have, rightfully, legally. That's the wife of another man. Does this remind you of any other characters in this Bible that we've already talked about? Once again, it kind of makes me think back to, to Adam. Remember Adam was in the Garden of Eden he had free reign for the entire Garden of Eden. He could have anything he wanted in that garden. There was only one thing that God said no to. He wasn't supposed to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when he did, 
His dream turned into a nightmare, and sin does what sin does. It messed everything up. And as we continue in the story of David here, you're going to find that David experiences the exact same thing. I mean, let's just, let's just kind of recap the this, this spiraling down process that David goes through. He starts off, he has this, this affair with this lady named Bathsheba. He gets her pregnant. So then David thinks, okay, I've got to come up with some sort of scheme, some way to, to cover this up and take care of this. And so he concocts this idea that he'll have Uriah, who is Bathsheba's husband, who happens to be out on the battlefield fighting for David, he's going to have Uriah sent home thinking that Uriah will go and he will, he will sleep with his wife, and then Uriah will think that this child is his. And so this is what they do, but Uriah comes home and he says, no, I can't sleep with my wife. My brothers in arms are out on the battlefield and I need to be with them. And so Uriah gets sent back to the battlefield, and so David stoops even lower. He comes up with another plan and he says, okay, well, if Uriah won't come back and do this, then, then I'll just have him killed on the battlefield. And so he has this plan that in the heat of the battle, all of a sudden, everybody's going to pull back and leave Uriah fighting by himself, and, and he's going to die, and then we'll just we'll, we'll play it off as a casualty of war. And that's what he does. And then to sort of top the whole sordid ordeal off, David then takes Bathsheba as his own wife. You know, I read stories like this in the Bible, and I can't help but ask, are, is this a biblical story, or is this like season one of the, uh, the daytime soap opera days of our lives? Which, by the way, a little side note here, random information from Bryce. I found out this last week that that television show, Days of Our Lives, has been on for 52 seasons is that not crazy? It started in 1965. I didn't even know they had televisions back then. Anyway, sorry, I digress. But I, I've got a question for you. And my question is, with this whole Bathsheba affair, with, with killing her husband and taking her as his own wife, who do you think is seated on the throne of David's heart at this time? Or maybe I should say, who do you think is not seated on the throne of David's heart? It sure isn't the same one that was there when David brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. It sure isn't the same one that was there when, when David showed Mephibosheth mercy. David kicked God off the throne of his heart. And he attempted to do things his own way. And sin did in his life what sin always does in any of our lives. Messed everything up. But I want to remind you that the story of the Bible is the story of God's desire to be with us. And just like God didn't give up on Adam, and he didn't give up on Abraham, and he didn't give up on Moses, God doesn't give up on David. In the same way that God pursued Adam and Abraham and Moses, God begins to pursue David. And he does it 
by sending a man by the name of Nathan. And he sends Nathan to David. And David, or Nathan is a prophet. And he comes to David for the sole purpose of confronting David about this whole Bathsheba affair thing. Now let me ask you this. When you think of somebody coming to confront you about something you've done wrong, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Do you get excited about it? I mean, are you really pumped up? All right, somebody's going to point out how bad of a person I am. No, none of us get excited about that. None of us like that. It's not fun. And this confrontation from Nathan wasn't fun. But it was good. You see, Nathan has to confront David about this Bathsheba thing because David is in serious denial about all of it. You hit the nail on the head. And there's something I want you to get from this. This is important. And we see it in the life of David that that God isn't so fixated on the depth of our sin. He isn't fixated on how how big our sin is. What God is concerned about is what do we do when we are confronted with the reality of our sin? And so Nathan comes to David and he tells David a story. He tells David a story about a guy who took something that wasn't his. And David hears this story and he He gets kind of outraged about it. He says, well, that's just not right. That's wrong. You can't take something that's not yours. Sometimes it's kind of easier to see the sin in someone else, isn't it? And Nathan says to David, he says, you're right. That is wrong. You can't take something that's not yours. He agrees with David. He says, but David, I got to tell you that this story I just told you, The story, it's about you. And I want you to catch how David responds to this. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. David says, I have sinned against the Lord. David didn't run and hide like Adam did. No, he gives us a great example of what it means to come clean before God. He falls before God and he cries out. And we read this in the Psalms. It says, Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt and purify me from my sin." Do you remember, this is thinking back a few weeks, but do you remember how Adam responded when he was confronted with his sin? He ran and he hid. And that led to him being driven further away from God, separated more. But David shows us a better way to deal with our sin. David owns up to his sin. 
And let me ask you this. When David owns up to his sin, who do you think that puts back on the throne of his heart? God. You see, David's story is so important in the story of the Bible because in his life is a pattern that is repeated by every other king throughout the Old Testament. God gives a king and puts them on the throne and and his goal is that that king would lead the people back to him. But each and every time the king eventually turns their back on God, decides to do things their own way, and leads the people away from God. And every single time, God sends another prophet to confront that king. I mean, think about some of the books of the Old Testament. You have books titled Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Nahum, Habakkuk, Amos, Obadiah, Micah. Over and over again, we see these names in the Old Testament. And these names, these books are named after individuals who were prophets. That God sent to to confront these kings, to bring them back to Him. And God does this over and over again with the kings. And the truth is, He does it over and over again with us, doesn't He? We start to think that we somehow can can do things better than God does. And we dethrone God in our lives and we start to make our own decisions and and sin just messes everything up. But God doesn't quit. He doesn't give up on us. He continues to pursue us. For hundreds and thousands of years, God endures the rejection of His people. He endures the the rejection of His dream. But He doesn't give up on it. He doesn't give up on us. And as we continue through this story in the Bible... We're going to find that eventually, after generations of pursuit, there's a baby that's born. And he's born in the hometown of guess who? David. This town is called the city of David. And and the city of David, you know what the name for that city is? It's Bethlehem. And do you know what the name of that baby who is born is? They call him Emmanuel. And do you know what Emmanuel means? Right. Emmanuel means God with us. God does not give up on His dream of being with us. He does not give up on His pursuit of bringing us back into that relationship with Him. You see, Jesus is a descendant of David. And so we find is that that what God began in David, he, He starts fresh and anew in the life of Jesus. 
As Jesus is the, I don't know, the great, 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 great grandson of David. And why did Jesus come? So God could be with us. So I have to ask the question this morning. Who is on the throne of your life? Maybe for some of us here this morning, we can say, well, there was a time. (laughs) There was a time when God was on the throne of my life. And I got to ask this morning, are you ready to are you ready to give him that place back? Maybe there's some of us here this morning who can say, God has never been on the throne of my life. And I got to ask you this morning, are you ready to let God take his rightful place in your life? And restore the dream that he's always had for you. Of being in a relationship with Him. You see, God is calling out to every one of us today. And He's saying, I want to be with you. Let's pray. Father, God, we thank you so much for loving us the way that you do, for being able and willing to pursue us the way that you do. And God, we stand before you this morning as humble people who need to say we're sorry. We're sorry for for kicking you off the throne in our lives when we do. We're sorry for thinking that, that our ways are better than yours. God, this morning, it's my prayer that each and every one of us here will realize the extent of your love and your grace and your mercy and just how much you desire to be with us. And that we might respond to that reality by inviting you to take your rightful place in our lives. We love you so much. You're someone's most precious name that we pray.